the calls keep coming on the Second Amendment, gun control and gun violence. They never stop. You folks really have strong views on this issue. Many of them very thoughtful, very intelligent. And I want all of my viewers and listeners to hear what you have to say. So today, again, we're going to devote much of the show to your points of view, to the wits that completes the Durr show, your wits on the Second Amendment and gun control. So let's hear what you have to say. I'm going to start out with a brief introduction and then turn to your intelligent calls. The fallout over the Boulder shooting, which followed by just a few days, the terrible, terrible shootings and killings in the Atlanta area. The fallout continues. Uh, politicians on all sides of the political spectrum are trying to use this event to further their uh, agendas. Um, uh, a man famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And we certainly are living in a crisis wherever you stand on the Second Amendment, on the gun control issue, everybody regards it as a crisis and a terrible situation that we're facing with um, hundreds and thousands even of people in recent years not knowing whether they're going to come home from a shopping trip or a trip to the church or synagogue or, or school. It has to stop. We have to do something about it. And yet we're probably as divided over the issue of gun control, the Second Amendment, uh, the right to bear arms, the right to be safe from people who bear arms, we're probably as divided, perhaps more divided, over that issue as any other issue that our deeply divided nation faces. And the Der Show is experiencing the same kind of situation. Um, I've spoken now uh, on two shows about my view of the Second Amendment, and I've gotten call after call after call, almost all disagreeing with me. And the promise of this show is that you always get an opportunity to express your views, even maybe especially if they disagree with my own. This is a seminar. This is an exchange of views. This is not simply me pontificating about one particular view of the Second Amendment. I have a view of the Second Amendment. It is an iconoclastic view. It's not a view widely accepted either in the academy or in the courts, and certainly not by my viewers and listeners. But I stand by my view. I think it makes a lot of sense from a constitutional interpretation point of view and from a policy point of view. Uh, one point I wanted to make, <clears throat> which I think is very ironic, and I'd be interested in hearing your views on this, particularly those of you who are conservative. Generally, conservatives take the position that issues that affect the lives of Americans should be decided by the elected branches of government, by the legislature. Generally, conservatives say the issue should be left largely to the states, not to the federal government. Generally, conservatives are opposed to the Supreme Court changing longstanding precedents and simply announcing a new approach that they discovered on their own 200 years after everybody else believed the approach was different. Generally, conservatives take those views, but not when it comes to gun control in the Second Amendment. When it comes to the Second Amendment, 
many supporters of the Second Amendment and opponents of gun control say this is an issue for nine, really five, unelected platonic guardians sitting in Washington, D.C., wearing their robes. How unconservative can you be to want to allocate this issue, then this issue alone, really, to the Supreme Court. No, no, no. Gay rights, state by state. Abortion, state by state. Leave it to the legislatures. But no, when it comes to gun control, no legislatures, um, no states, federal government, Washington, D.C., nine people in robe, five to four decisions. They're going to tell us whether it's going to be safe to go to the supermarket for a, a visit. Now, the hypocrisy isn't only on one side. Liberals also have changed their approach. Generally, liberals generally take the position courts, you know, the Supreme Court, the Constitution, the legislatures know. And yeah, Washington, Washington knows better than the states. Don't leave it to the states. Again, woman's right to choose. Nine justices, seven to two, Roe versus Wade. We're happy with that. We don't need to go to the states. Gay rights. We're happy with that. Uh, Supreme Court uh, decides we're going to follow the Supreme Court. You have to. But not when it comes to the Second Amendment. Suddenly, liberals and Democrats are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why should we defer to the Supreme Court? Uh, this is really something for the legislatures. Why should we leave it focused in Washington? Washington doesn't know about the problems of Boulder, Colorado, or the problems of uh, uh, the outskirts of Atlanta, then leave it to the states, leave it to the municipalities. Uh, so we're seeing both sides of this contentious, ideological, regional debate willing to sacrifice their jurisprudential notions. Who gets to decide legislature versus courts, Washington versus states? We see everybody switching their jurisprudential perspectives in order to get to the result they want. More guns, fewer guns, more regulation, less regulation, jurisprudence be damned. We're going to get it done our way, and we don't care what the implications are for other matters that might come before the courts or the legislature. So when you call in, if you're a conservative, explain to me why you're so willing to defer to the Supreme Court in Washington. And if you're a liberal, explain to me why have you abandoned the Supreme Court in Washington and why are you suddenly a states' rights activist when it comes to gun control? You got a lot of splaining to do, as they used to say on television. I'm not surprised. This is an emotional issue. This is an issue that often uh, causes people to respond with their gut rather than with their uh, brain. I'm not suggesting that's true of my callers. I've had very, very thoughtful callers. And I decided again, this is the first time we've done this, for a third day in a row to deal with guns, gun control, Boulder, Atlanta. And I'm going to devote the rest of the show to answering your calls. I know I got a lot of them. I haven't heard them. They're all coming spontaneously. I strongly suspect if it's consistent with previous calls that they're going to take me to the woodshed on this one and tell me that I'm not consistent with my own principles and policies. I am consistent with my own principles and policies, and I am consistent with the way I've always read and construed the Constitution. But take me on, take me on. 
I'm sticking to my guns. Whoops, bad metaphor, probably, when we're talking about what's going on uh, with shooting. But I am stating my conclusions firmly, and you can talk me out of them. If you persuade me, I will change my mind. I am open to to criticism. I'm open to uh, changes. I'm open to uh, whatever points of view you want to express. So bring it on. Bring it on on The Dirt Show. Hi, Alan Eric Willison from Columbus, Ohio. Love you. Love your show. On the Second Amendment, uh, you admit that the Heller decision uh, states a plausible interpretation of the Second Amendment, just like you state a plausible interpretation of the Second Amendment. Now, in criminal law, we have the rule of lenity. In contract law, we have the rule that contracts are to be construed against their drafters. Underlying these is the principle that those who draft laws and contracts should speak clearly, uh, that the non-drafters shouldn't suffer a loss of rights because the drafters didn't speak clearly. Why doesn't this same principle apply here to the Second Amendment and favor a broader interpretation rather than a more restrictive one. Thank you so much for your show. It's a great question, and you make a very, very good point. I certainly favor broad interpretations of um, other bills of right, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. Uh, But here we have, like we have in many instances, conflicting rights. We have the right of gun ownership and uh, possession of guns, keep and bear arms, but on the other side, we also have the right to life, and people are claiming they have a, a right not to be uh, endangered by guns in the hands of people who have not been well-regulated, whose gun ownership has not been well-regulated. So I don't see this as a broad or narrow interpretation. Uh, the right is there, but the question is, is there also a right of citizens to make sure that gun ownership is well-regulated. Both phrases appear in the Constitution. So I agree with your general point, but I'm not sure that it necessarily negates my point. Look, you, you have a point. Generally, I much prefer broader, broader, wider um, interpretations of constitutional provisions. And here I am struggling with the words. You're right. Um, but I think that the drafters left us in a quandary. Uh, They could have been clearer. You say, and you're right, contracts are interpreted against the drafters. Well, we can't interpret this Second Amendment against the drafters. They're not here. They're not around. We don't know exactly what their views are. And we have groups on both sides claiming the protection of the Second Amendment. Uh, Those who want to bear arms, look at the second clause. Those who want to be protected from People who shouldn't have guns, look at the words well-regulated and focus on the fact that the right of the states to have militias was at stake. So the debate continues, but you make a very good point, and it's worth considering. Thanks. Hey, Ellen, this is Keenan from Colorado. I listened to your show for your insightful legal analysis and your against-the-grain liberal perspective. Uh, but I feel like every time that you talk about the Second Amendment, you're making a case as to why I should doubt everything that you say. I don't care if you're an expert on the different types of guns or millimeter bullets or any of that information, but you're spreading this information. You stated specifically that rioters were carrying firearms on January 6th. They were not. They just were not. And if you were able to find any evidence 
To the contrary, please contact and correct the FBI who has stated publicly that there were none, none of these people. So secondly, you talk about allowing states to allow for well-regulated well ownership of firearms. But you can only say that from a place of ignorance because firearm owners, specifically in blue states, sometimes have to wait three to six months for no functional purpose. It serves no purpose other than just being a deterrent, a discouragement from owning a firearm. It keeps you away from doing it, kept me away from doing it. It's not a regulation. It's a discouragement from a Second Amendment right. Third, you cannot correlate gun ownership to higher murder rates. As before COVID, London had exceeded New York in murder rate without a single firearm being used in London. Two days ago, you criticized the New York Times for merely being a mouthpiece of the DNC without checking any of their facts. And yesterday, you did the exact same thing to, with regard to gun control. Thanks, and I love the show. I appreciate your call, but I challenge you to come up with the data. You cannot tell me that there is a higher murder rate um, in London than in uh, in um, New York uh, or or in other places where guns are easily available. Uh, I don't know anybody who disputes the fact that we have the highest rates of gun murder of any country in the world and probably in the history of the world, and we have uh, the easiest availability of guns of virtually any Western democracy in the world. As far as mistakes, there were some, a small number perhaps, but some people who were found with uh, weapons on uh, on January uh, 6th. I, I'm not suggesting for a moment that guns played a role in that. It did not, that the, the disruptions were by people who broke in. That I, I never use that as an example of um, uh, what happens when you allow gun ownership. Um, I use Boulder and, and Boulder <clears throat> just a few days before he went and killed all these people. He, we don't know where he got it, but he just apparently just walked into a shop and bought uh, a semi-automatic rifle with as much ammunition as, as he could get and started out by multiply shooting uh, an old man uh, on the way into the uh, supermarket and then killing everybody he could in the supermarket. We don't know his motives. There have been all kinds of speculation about his motives. Most recently, uh, the speculation is focused on the fact that the supermarket that he went into um, is a favorite for many Jewish customers and was advertising that it was the place to get kosher food if you go online. I did it to check it out. With that supermarket, you see a big ad for one-stop kosher uh, shopping for the Passover holiday. We have no idea whether this man, who does come from Syria, uh, had any uh, interest in who the customers were. He did travel several miles to get to this particular store, and this store is apparently, according to the Boulder community, I've just read some stuff online, a store which is very popular with Jewish customers because of its availability of, of kosher of kosher food approved by, by the rabbinical uh, commission. I don't know, and I'm not going to speculate as to the motive, but regardless of what the motive was, there seems to be a history of anger and mental illness as well. Those are not mutually inconsistent. Mentally ill people can be racists and bigots and etc. But without regard to anything else, if he didn't have easy access to a gun, he could not have killed as many people in so short a period of time. That's just a fact. And I think that those of you who are against uh, reasonably well-regulated gun control have to concede the facts and then argue from there. I mean, you can make the argument that 
uh, people with guns. Somebody made the argument yesterday. If everybody in the supermarket uh, who worked there was required to carry a gun, he probably would have picked a different supermarket to go to. That's a plausible uh, argument because it's a hypothetical. But you can't deny the association, and I believe the causal relationship between easy access to guns and um, uh, the numbers of, of, of mass shootings that that we have. Um, that, you know, that doesn't answer the question definitively because if the Second Amendment is to be construed absolutely as even the Supreme Court hasn't construed it, that would end the debate at least for now. We'd have to talk about a constitutional amendment. As far as waiting times, I'm not suggesting a six-month waiting period. I'm suggesting very reasonable period of time. Uh, the amount of time you have to wait to get a driver's license. Uh, maybe you have to be checked. Maybe you have to take a test. Uh, what's the difference between a driver's license and a uh, license to have a gun? Both can be used positively and both can be used uh, negatively. Um, and so uh, reasonable, well-regulated, not unreasonable uh, restrictions um, are what I advocate. And the vast majority of Americans agree with me, by the way, perhaps not the majority of callers in the show, but polls show, and of course it always depends on how you frame the question, but polls show that the overwhelming majority of Americans who support the Second Amendment also support reasonable gun control. That's my position. may not be always the case that I'm in sync with the majority of Americans, but in this case, I think I am. Yes, Mr. Dershowitz. Thank you for your thoughts on the Second Amendment. There is a comma after militia and free state, but not after people. So I will agree to disagree with you on your interpretation and leave you with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Laws that forbid the carrying of arms disarm only those who serve neither inclined nor determined to commit crimes. Such laws make things worse for the assaulted and better for the assailant. They serve rather to encourage than to prevent homicide, for an unarmed man may be attacked with greater confidence than an armed man. Thank you, Mr. Dershowitz. Well, thanks for your view. I, I know Jefferson's views, and uh, Jefferson you know, came from a rural area of the country, and uh, guns were part of his uh, culture. Um, others of the framers uh, may very well have had a different view. None of them had in mind semi-automatic or automatic uh, weapons, and we don't know what they would say in light of what's going on today. As far as the commas are concerned, I have no idea what you're talking about. It says, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, and there's no comma after people. Of course there's no comma after people. That would be totally ungrammatical. And the right of the people, comma, to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I, I have no idea what your grammatical point is. Grammar does not solve this problem. The Second Amendment is written ambiguously, badly, badly drafted, and leaves open plausible interpretations going either way, and I think the most plausible interpretation and the one that makes the most sense in the current era of easy gun availability, particularly of semi-automatic and automatic weapons, is to, will, is to read the words well-regulated as giving permission of the legislature 
to regulate the ownership of guns. My position, yours is different. Let's continue to discuss, but it won't turn on any commas. Hi, Mr. Dershowitz. I just listened to your uh, Second Amendment call response episode. And one question that really stood out to me um, was something that I'd actually spoken with my family about at the dinner table tonight after listening to the original Second Amendment episode that you put out. And that was the question of the founding of America coming on the heels of this dramatic break from England and then the Revolutionary War. So I'm curious to know how you square your interpretation of the Bill of Rights uh, in that light and, and believing that it would not ever take into consideration the need for the states to, in fact, uh, basically go into battle or fight back against the federal government. So I'd be curious to hear what you think about that and just love the show. Thanks. Have a good day. Thanks. I do not believe the framers of the Constitution wanted to include a right to use guns against the government. Uh, look at our history of using guns against the government. Uh, people thought they were brave and courageous heroes. They used the gun to kill Abraham Lincoln. Uh, they used the gun to shoot at Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Fortunately, they missed him. They used the gun to kill uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, they used the gun to wound um, uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, an attempt was made on the life of Gerald Ford. Uh, Garfield uh, was killed. Um, guns, 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 guns. Yes, they were used against the government. I don't think we're proud of the fact that easy gun availability helped kill more American presidents than many heads of states and many other uh, democracies. Yes, guns were used by Castro to overthrow the government. They were used by the Bolsheviks to overthrow um, a peaceful, uh, democratic uh, government. Yes, guns can be used uh, both uh, for good and, and bad uh, uh, purposes. And yes, guns were used against Americans in the Boston Massacre. Uh, and guns were used by Americans at Lexington and Concord. Uh, mixed history, but it doesn't tell us what the framers meant when they talked about a well-regulated uh, militia. That's for current judges, justices, uh, academics, podcast hosts, podcast listeners and viewers to continue to debate. There's no definitive, clear answer in the Second Amendment or in the history of the Second Amendment that allows us to say with definitive certainty one interpretation or the other is right. And that was evident if you read the majority opinion, the dissenting opinion in the Heller case. You see uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, you know, you get, you get, uh, reminds me of the, of the question that was asked a, a rabbi back in the, uh, in the 18th century. So a husband and a wife are fighting and, and the husband comes in and says, my wife's terrible. She doesn't cook. She doesn't clean. You know, we're talking about a sexist century. She doesn't do this. She doesn't do that. Um, and, and she's destroying the marriage. And the rabbi looks at him and says, my son, you're right. You're right. 
Then the wife walks in and says, my husband's terrible. He beats me. He attacks me. He criticizes me. He never eats my food, etc. And the and the, the rabbi says, you know, my daughter, you're right. And the student says, rabbi, they can't both be right. And the rabbi says to the student, student, you're right. So, you know, everybody's right. Everybody's wrong. Everybody's has their views when it comes to the Second Amendment. Let's continue the debate. There is no perfect, perfect answer to what the Second Amendment was intended to mean. Hi, Professor Dirk. This is Chris from Troy, New York. Love your show. Even though I usually disagree with your political opinions, I know you'd fight to the very end to protect my right to feel that way and say what I want. So I really appreciate that. On the gun control issue, I'm like you. I'm not a gun guy. But doesn't the fact that the Constitution say the right to keep and bear arms suggest that it pre-existed the Constitution and the Second Amendment is a way to strengthen and ossify the matter? I'd love to hear what you have to say. Thanks a lot, Professor. Bye-bye. Oh, of course you're right. Uh, all the rights in the Bill of Rights are pre-existing. Um, some existed in state constitutions. Some insisted in state laws. Some insisted just in practice. Look at the First Amendment. It says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. The freedom of speech. We know there was a freedom of speech. We know there were great cases, uh, John Peter Zenger's case in the um, early part of the 18th century, established by judicial precedent uh, the right of free speech. Um, the Virginia codes, the Massachusetts codes, all had some provisions for free speech, and many of them had provisions for gun, gun ownership, some legislative, some constitutional. So, of course, there was a pre-existing right. The question is, was the pre-existing right subject to regulation? Uh, could it be well regulated? Was it tied to the existence of the militia? Those are all the questions the Second Amendment raises, and history raises them as well. So your point's a good one, but it doesn't resolve the question definitively. Thank you for taking my call, Mr. Dershowitz. Uh, this is Carol from Oregon. And I wonder if you would address United States versus Miller from 1939 in terms of the Second Amendment. Uh, the primary holding on a website I'm looking at, Justia, says only weapons that have a reasonable relationship to the effectiveness of a well-regulated militia under the Second Amendment are free from government regulation. Thank you. Well, of course, you're 100% right. Until the Heller case, it never occurred to almost anybody except Justice Thomas and, and a few uh, academics to see a private right of gun ownership or possession in the Second Amendment. Uh, up until then, all the cases had said that you read the first clause as the not only reason for the second clause, but as the limitation on the second clause. Heller changed that. Um, reasonable people could disagree about whose reading is correct. But again, I go back to what I said previously. Normally, conservatives look at precedent and say, look, it's been that way for 200 years. Uh, how should the courts have a right to just willy-nilly change it based on a brief that's been uh, filed? But conservatives love, many conservatives, not all, love the Heller case and are prepared to turn over this issue that involves the lives and deaths of every potential, potential lives and death of every citizen of the United States, turn it over to five unelected judges who can, in a five to four decision, um, take away the power of state legislatures to well-regulate uh, guns. Fortunately, the Hella case doesn't do that. 
it does permit for uh, regulation. And there's a case following Heller, which says that uh, this not only applies to uh, the federal government, it applies to states as well. So states today don't have the power to well regulate uh, guns, except consistent with the words of the Second Amendment, which has now been interpreted to give a private right of gun ownership and possession to individual citizens. But it doesn't take away the power of the state to totally, uh, um, uh, doesn't take totally the power away to do some degree of regulation. And what we're in is an intermediate position in our history and jurisprudence in which we're going to see much debate about how far the power of the state and the federal government to regulate goes. Uh, now that there is a both Democratic House, Senate, and President, we may see some effort by the federal legislature, by Congress, to add restrictions to gun ownership. Certainly, President Biden has called for that. And those restrictions will be tested in the courts. Believe me, the National Rifle Association will be in court the next day, and others will be along with them, challenging any attempt to further regulate gun ownership. So uh, this is not over. This is an ongoing debate, which is why I'm prepared to devote three separate shows in a row to this important, divisive, and emotional issue. Hi, Alan. My name is Jim. I live in Longmont, Colorado, which is 12 miles from Boulder, Colorado. I am an open carrier of firearms. I carry everywhere and I carry every day. If someone had been there, even one person who could have returned fire instead of allowing that man to calmly and systematically shoot his victims, he would have been at least a distraction while other people escaped. Had I been there, I would have been that person. And no, I'm not a hero. Uh, the fact that there were 10 dead and no injured means that he was selectively and calmly taking his victims one by one, and they didn't stand a chance. Unfortunately, there were no carriers in the building at the time, apparently, because no one shot at him or even tried to distract him with a firearm, which is really unfortunate. So anyway, take it for what it's worth. If there had been defenders there, he would have at least been distracted and the death toll wouldn't have been as high. And he was supposed to be crazy. Here's how crazy he was. He stripped down to his underwear and separated himself from his weaponry so that he wouldn't be shot by the police. That's not crazy. That's smart. This guy is not as nutty as they say he was. Thank you. You have a good day. You make a good point. I'm sure you're right. If there had been some people, even one person in the store with a gun who had the courage to shoot back, things might have been different. There was one person with a gun and he was killed. Uh, that is the very brave police officer. He came with his gun. And I don't know the facts, whether he had begun firing or not, but the gun didn't protect him. Uh, and the killer had a faster gun or a more accurate gun and killed the brave and honorable police officer. So having a gun is no guarantee of safety. But, you know, you make a point. Of course, you're right. If everybody carried guns, um, there would be a greater opportunity to prevent mass killings of this kind. But at what cost? Um, you know, People use their guns uh, sometimes uh, 
promiscuously, uh, if they're provoked. We know how many times we've had shootings based on um, uh, uh, people in cars getting into arguments about parking spaces. Um, so, yeah, there are benefits in stopping mass shootings to people having guns, and there are disadvantages as well. And the question is, should it be up to the courts or should it be up to the legislatures to balance the advantages versus the disadvantages and come to some, uh, to some um, a compromise solution about regulation? Look, I'm completely convinced that people like you, the caller, should should have a gun. Uh, you're responsible. You carry it all the time. You have it with you. Uh, you've never hurt anybody, as far as I know, and you probably would have been brave enough to stand up to the mass murderer. But that's just you. Um, for every you, who knows how many people of the kind that use their guns in Atlanta and in um, in Boulder exist, maybe only a small percentage. But those are issues that have to be weighed and a calibrated, nuanced, well-designed, well-regulated decision has to be made. So I don't think we fundamentally uh, disagree about your point. Yes, if there had been somebody with a gun, it probably could have turned out differently. Hi, my name is Jim. I'm from Longmont, Colorado. You had stated that well-regulated meant like regulations to codification, etc. Well-regulated, if you look up in the Oxford English Dictionary, you will find that at the time of the use of the words well-regulated, it meant well-trained, well-equipped. It did not mean well-regulated by statute, by codification, anything like that. So basically, you're wrong on that. You need to uh, just do a little research. Go to the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the authority on the English language, and look it up, what the usage was at the time of the founding, not what it meant today. You have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Thanks, but I think you make my point. You said that um, it meant uh, well-trained. Yeah, I'm happy with that. Um, let's have people who have access to guns be well-trained. Um, Obviously, well-trained includes making sure that people who shouldn't have access to guns don't. Uh, when militias are well-trained, and I accept your definition, when militias are well-trained, that includes the captains or the heads of the militia saying, uh-uh, not you, you're too hot-headed, put your gun back, uh, you, you're okay, you're okay, maybe we can train you to be better, but until you're trained, you don't have access to the gun. So. I don't see any incompatibility between the concept of well-trained and well-regulated to train somebody is to subject them to some degree of regulation. That's what is done in the Army. You certainly would never accept the view that uh, the way in which we treat uh, soldiers or militia members, we should treat our ordinary citizens because soldiers have very much fewer rights than ordinary citizens. Citizens have far greater freedom and rights and, and even rights to own guns. Um, so well-trained, um, I think, supports my view, but I appreciate very much your pointing me to the um, uh, Oxford Dictionary, which was a source, uh, obviously, available. Webster's hadn't come out yet in the United States. He really begins to develop his dictionary a little later. And we even find uh, in the United States a lot of diversity on spelling um, because we didn't have a, 
a coherent method of spelling, but the dictionary that was used was uh, the Oxford and um, well-trained. I'm, I'm happy to accept that. I think it helps support my view. Hi, Alan. This is in response to your podcast on the Second Amendment. Um, I just wanted to say with all due respect that I'm a little mystified uh, how you as a Jew wouldn't understand the relevance of firearms in light of past persecutions, uh, pervasive anti-Semitism, and I'm having a hard time making sense of your understanding of the Second Amendment in light of the historical and constitutional context. You know that the militia is the people, uh, like the Minutemen. You know that they were pushing back against the tyranny of the British Empire, and they were doing everything possible to prevent tyranny at home. And so the Second Amendment isn't arbitrary, but it comes on the heels of the First Amendment. Um, the division of powers is central to the government. It is literally an anti-tyranny document, or supposed to be. Uh, but my question is, in what sense do you think the crimes would have been prevented by attacking the Second Amendment? Or don't you think that the risk of attacking the Second Amendment uh, it could potentially lead to greater issues in light of history. Uh, anyways, I, I say this with all due respect. I, I think Homer nodded on this issue. Uh, maybe your emotions are getting the best of you. I, I don't know, but I, I respect you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, first of all, I'm not attacking the Second Amendment. I'm embracing the Second Amendment. I'm embracing the whole of the Second Amendment, including the uh, first part of it that talks about a well-regulated militia. Second, in terms of Jews, I have to tell you as a Jew, uh, I'm, I'm very happy uh, if people have fewer guns, not more guns. Jews were subjected to pogroms and attacks by individuals uh, with guns, and uh, Jews managed to defend themselves largely by um, when they, for the first time, established our own army, their own armed forces. It started with a, a great Jewish Zionist uh, named Jabotinsky, who founded the first Jewish army, the first Jewish legion since the Maccabees. Um, he did it in the middle of the First World War, and he sent Jewish soldiers uh, to Palestine, uh, Israel, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, uh, in order to protect the Jewish communities of, of uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and, and other areas with an organized army, with a militia called the Jewish Legion. Um, and then, of course, when uh, the Haganah was established, it was an army. It was a well-regulated army. And now the IDF, Israel Defense Forces, which is one of the great armies of the world, is highly regulated. Everybody carries a gun uh, when they're in the army, but they don't get to keep their guns uh, when they leave the army. Israel has pretty, pretty tight gun control uh, regulations. And so, you know, as, as a Jew who's been... Uh, subject to uh, discrimination, not in my case very much, but parents, grandparents, my father used to tell me stories about how we had to fight against gangs of kids. Uh, I think we were blessed with fewer guns. I remember for the first time in my neighborhood when a kid um, uh, came around and he had a zip gun that he had made uh, with a very strong rubber band and a piece of wood and um, a, a bullet and something against which the bullet could be uh, um, placed. And uh, we were all scared out of our wits. We were perfectly happy to fight with our fists, but uh, we didn't want to see zip guns introduced into our neighborhood. 
So I really do think that uh, there's no ethnic group that I don't think this is an issue that divides along ethnic lines, by the way. I've never seen that, black, white, Jewish, non-Jewish. I don't think it divides along ethnic lines. As far as our revolutionary history, we were fighting a revolution. Of course, in revolutions, uh, it was lawless. It was treason. As, as uh, Benjamin Franklin said, if we don't hang together, we will surely hang separately. They would have hanged Thomas Jefferson and um, George Washington had we lost the revolution. But once the revolution was won, and the Declaration of Independence, which is a radical document, was delivered, uh, we created a, a very conservative constitution, a constitution that uh, enforces laws and, and creates for stability. The Constitution says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense. It doesn't say and, pro and pro promote uh, possible new revolutions against our constitutional authority. So I just have never bought into the notion that the Second Amendment is designed to give people guns so that they can overthrow the government, so that they can shoot presidents of the United States, so many of whom have been have been shot. I just don't buy into that. I think the, the purpose of the Second Amendment uh, is to permit people to defend themselves against uh, lawlessness and to uh, allow them to hunt and to create uh, state militias, but not to overthrow the government by force or violence, because we have laws prohibiting the overthrow of the government by force and violence, and those laws are legitimate self-defense. As I said before, <clears throat> the Constitution is not a suicide pact. It is not designed to give people the power to overthrow legitimate government. If you don't like legitimate gov illegitimate government, vote against it and uh, use the First Amendment uh, but the Second Amendment is not designed as a substitute for the First Amendment. Professor Dershowitz, this is Bob from New York calling about your Second Amendment podcast. I have a question for you. Why are you discussing Second Amendment and gun regulation? Uh, do you think that that would anything that would eventually ever happen to your um, liking? Would it have any impact on gun violence in this country in the next year or five years or 10 years? You said it yourself, how many guns are already in the possession of, uh, of the citizens of this country legally and illegally. So I'm curious why I know you love the Constitution and you love to discuss the amendments, particularly the First Amendment. But as far as the Second Amendment, you could basically get rid of it prohibit all gun purchases in the United States, and it wouldn't take away the hundreds of millions of guns that are in the possession of legal and unlegal, legally and unlegally today. So I really want to hear what you think your discussion is going to have any impact at all on gun violence in the near future, or maybe are you looking for something 150 years in the future as a solution? Thank you. No, I'm not looking at tomorrow, and I'm not looking at 150 years. I care about my children and my grandchildren and your children and grandchildren. And I do think that if we were to introduce effective uh, regulation, uh, moderate uh, uh, controls over how guns are bought, what kind of guns are available, it could have a major impact on crime in America. We can also couple that with buyback programs, which have been very successful in some parts of the world, that is, the government offers people voluntarily a choice 
to sell their weapons back, also an amnesty uh, period. Um, I can see easily a statute being enacted uh, prohibiting the possession of semi-automatic weapons and uh, doing two things, offering amnesty to anybody who turns in a semi-automatic weapon and offering just compensation. Uh, you might even argue under the principles of the takings clause of the Constitution that if they take your guns away, um, maybe they have an obligation to pay for them. I'd be certainly open to considering that, but I, I, you make a point, of course, a very important point. How do you take 300 and more, 300 million more guns away from people? The law won't do it overnight. You're, of course, completely correct. But uh, a reasonable interpretation of the Second Amendment, coupled with reasonable legislation, reasonable programs for amnesty and buyback, could have a significant impact. Um, you know, you're right when you point to certain parts of the country, cities, inner cities, other areas, where there is uh, gun control and yet where there is gun violence. Uh, it's not a magical solution any more than lowering the speed limit uh, on highways uh, is a guarantee that every call will go within the limit and there'll be no more uh, or many, many fewer fatalities. We do know that when Massachusetts did lower the speed limit, it had a discernible impact on uh, automobile uh, deaths, and that's true in other places as well. So the law matters, but the law alone doesn't solve social problems. You have a point. I so enjoy getting your calls, and I particularly enjoy hearing your views that correct my views or criticize my views or disagree with my views. That's what the First Amendment is all about. And you have your First Amendment right to give me your views on the Second Amendment. And so far, uh, my views haven't changed much, but I'm open to hear more, and I'm willing to debate and discuss not only this issue, but any issue. And let, let's continue these dialogues. They're uh, enjoyable to me. I hope they're enjoyable to you. Tell your friends. Subscribe uh, on all the platforms. Keep sending questions. And let's keep America safe. And let's keep our liberties preserved. And let's strike the appropriate balances. And let's talk about all these issues on The Dirt Show. An important part of The Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.